Hello. You're listening to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm the Podcast Operations Manager for Lee. With Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, we're presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists for the dozens of various Lee Enterprises-owned publications from around America. For this first series, we're taking a short drive east of Tulsa, Oklahoma to learn more about the state's most notorious cold case, the 1977 slaying of three Girl Scouts. The episode that you're about to hear is the sixth in a six-part series, so if this is your entry to the show, head back to episode one and start from the beginning. There will be a seventh installment coming next week to wrap things up and take questions from listeners. So if you've made it this far in the series and there's anything that you want to know more about, email me at clay at madison.com. There will also be a link with my email or any other contact info in the show notes that you can access there. What you'll hear first is audio from a series of articles written and read by Tulsa World journalist Tim Stanley that was published in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of the tragedy. After that, you'll hear a conversation between myself and Tim that expands on the story and explores his experiences reporting the series so many decades after the initial crime. It might go without saying, But given the subject matter here and every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. While everything here would be fit to print in a newspaper, parents are still cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. For now, though, here's Tim reading Chapter 6, which is titled Still Feeling the Impact. Everywhere Carla Wilhite turned, something familiar seemed to jump out at her. Nature's trail, the wishing well, even the old ceremonial fire ring at Inspiration Point. They were all still there. But it's what was missing from the whole scene that affected Wilhite most. Visiting the former Camp Scott with a group of fellow alumni in 2015, nearly 40 years since they were last there, she looked hard for the Kiowa unit where she had been a counselor. There was no foundation, no anything, Wilhite said. It was pretty much filled in with trees, as if it were never there, as if the murders had never happened. I wasn't prepared for that. Wilhite knew that they had happened, of course, better than just about anyone. The one who'd found the bodies of Denise Milner, Lori Farmer, and Michelle Gousset on June 13, 1977, she'd carried that horrific image in her mind ever since. Turning from where the Kiowa unit had once been, she was able to point out the general area where the dead girls had lain. And there, Wilhite said, she and her companions paused. We prayed together and had a moment of silence, she said. It was a hard thing to do and also felt like the right thing to do. Pray for the children, the parents, for Camp Scott, and for ourselves. No one had been quite sure what to expect of going back to Camp Scott, Wilhite said. There was some apprehensiveness up front, and for days afterwards she would feel a sense of loss about the Kiowa unit. But in the end, one feeling about the return, a good one, prevailed over all others. I felt like I was home, Wilhite said. 
Camp Scott, which was shut down after the murders, is now privately owned and used for a hunting lease. But in the past couple of years, with permission, a number of people with ties to the case have made trips back. Will Height was part of a group organized by former camper and camp aide Michelle Hoffman. For her group, Hoffman said, it was part of a healing process that had been too long delayed. What's amazing is the amount of guilt that many of us felt, because these girls died on our watch, Hoffman said. Those feelings were never shared, she added. In that era, they weren't supposed to talk about it, just move on, which, as the medical world now knows better, can lead to emotional problems later. Hoffman lived with anxiety attacks for years, with no idea it might be related to the murders. She was finally diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I had thought I was losing my mind, she said. Taking a therapist's advice to find a creative outlet, Hoffman started interviewing fellow Camp Scott alumni from the summer of 1977 for a documentary. She was initially met with anger about stirring it up, she said. I had to convince them to talk. Now they are talking. Now they are healing. Playing a role in that healing for several of them has been a new friend. Born and raised in Locust Grove, Dean Majors was six years old at the time of the murders. His boyhood home was just a mile from Camp Scott, in fact. Now a Tulsa accountant, Majors, says the case remains a sensitive subject for some in his hometown. But whichever side they came down on, Majors said, they are all good people just trying to live with the aftermath. It wasn't planned, Majors said, but a few years ago through social media he began talking to the Milners, and from there he met the farmers. Relationships were sparked. Now they are valued parts of each other's lives. Majors has even taken the farmers for a couple of visits to Locust Grove. I'd kind of like for the families to know that the people there do care, he said, that there were way more people out there that were more sympathetic than what they ran into. Not everyone was against them. You always hear the loud minority, and that doesn't necessarily represent everybody. Majors, who also facilitated Hoffman's group's return to Camp Scott, is hopeful about the future. I'm sure the families still have their feelings about what happened back then, he said. Maybe their feelings about the town aren't quite as negative as they were before. For many of this story's survivors, it's been a season of returns. Betty Milner had one of her own to make, and Majors was involved in it, too. For almost 40 years since the burial, Milner had not been back to her daughter's Denise's grave at Green Acres Cemetery. She had been to the cemetery itself, she said, but could not bring herself to view the grave site, which is next to the grave of Walter Milner, Denise's late father. But in January 2016, at the encouragement of family, and with Majors, her friend, at her side, she finally did it. I was glad to finally be able to, Milner said. What had held her back for so long, she can't say. As the granddaughter of a Baptist minister, she attended a lot of funerals and burials growing up. She's always been uneasy about the idea of putting somebody in the ground, she said. It had never been so real, though, until it was her own daughter. Encouraging Milner to visit the grave was her youngest daughter, Crystal. She was also going for the first time, along with her own daughter, Milner's granddaughter, Denise named in honor of the big sister Crystal never had a chance to know. Milner said she doesn't know when or if she will go to the grave again. But at least now I know that I can, she said. The outcome for families who are hit by tragedy is often not good. The stress is intense and it can wreck lives and homes. 
But that's where the families in the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders are exceptional. Forty years later, they are still standing. For the farmers, married now for 52 years, they are more committed to each other than ever. When you lose a child to murder, it's a tremendous grief. It just seems to be perpetuated, Bo Farmer said, adding that through any legal proceedings to follow, and even beyond that, the loss is relived over and over. After attending every day of the preliminary hearing and trial with his wife, Bo has remained a supportive presence at her side, as well as a partner in her advocacy work. You don't mess with Sherry, he says with a chuckle, a reference to his wife's strong will and reputation for getting things done. Over the years, he's found himself saying that phrase a lot, and while he laughs, the admiration in his voice is obvious. For all her outward toughness, though, Sherry admits it's been a different story on the inside. Ever since her daughter's death, she has battled depression and feelings of guilt. That's something I have not talked about, she said. I think now maybe it's time. I hope it will help someone. She hopes, too, that the family's examples will be helpful. I'm proud of all the families, Farmer said. We were three very different families bound together through horrible circumstances. Farmer said her daughter, Jolie, is writing a book to give their family side and make the focus on the girls and the survivors. We are a family. We cared about Lori. We still care about Lori. And yet we have moved on, Sherry said, adding that despite what perceptions might be, the family is not stuck in tragedy or in a place of blaming. They would like answers, yes. But that's not the end-all that will suddenly make our lives perfect, she added. There is no closure. I don't know who made up that word. It's a journey. Accompanying Sherry and Bo on that journey have been their four surviving children. The oldest, Misty Shannon, who was seven when her sister died, said she admires her parents for how they raised her and her siblings from that moment on. They didn't have an owner's manual or playbook on how to handle the murder of your eight-year-old daughter. They did the best they could, and they've done very well, Shannon said. She added that she and her siblings always felt loved and fully supported, and while there were ups and downs, having a strong family at home made all the difference. The foundation of that, Sherry Farmer said, was and remains faith. My children are all faithful to God. I think they saw that if my mom and dad can go through something like that and still believe in God, then I guess there's something to it. I believe we are only here today as a family because God is good. Staying faithful to God was also key for Betty Milner. Longtime member of Antioch Baptist Church, her faith helped her deal with all the whys that plagued her for years. Add to it the events of the past couple of years, with the visit to the grave, and meeting and talking to camp counselors and others who were there, and Milner feels as whole as she has in 40 years. Of course, she added, no healing will be complete without answers and those continue to be elusive. I thought one day we would finally know what happened, Milner said, but now I don't think we ever will. Some people remain determined that won't be the case, though. One of them, Susan Kelly, who operates the website CampScottMurders.com, says keeping the search for answers going is what motivates her. To me, that's the most frustrating part, that the families have no conclusion. An open wound is still there, said Kelly, a Salome Springs, Arkansas resident and self-described armchair investigator researcher. It's a mission that feels personal to her. At the time, a seven-year-old Girl Scout whose mother was a troop leader, she remembers how the murders shook everyone, adults and children alike. We were 30 miles away in Salome Springs, but it felt pretty much next door, she said. 
At seven, it was like the boogeyman was right outside, like the boogeyman was going after Girl Scouts. The story gnawed at Kelly for years. Then, about ten years ago, finding little information available, she decided to research it herself. The result was the website and a self-published book. The goal behind both, she said, is to get more and more information out there to people. The website is an ongoing project and includes transcripts of the complete pre-trial hearings. Kelly raised money herself to make copies of the courthouse originals, then scanned them in. Keeping the story alive, she said, gives us a little hold on it. In a sense, it also keeps the murderer from getting away with it. Kelly's message to the families? We haven't forgotten, and we won't forget. People still care. Unlike some of the others with ties to Camp Scott, Mike Wheat won't be going back anytime soon. I've been there, he said. Having seen it at the time of the murders, the former journalist has no desire to return. Even so, he can't help going back in his mind sometimes. We will never know the absolute truth about the case, Wheat said as he reflected on it recently. And consequently, people will never stop debating it. It's one of those things that generates its own conspiracy theories, he said. This 40th anniversary project, he added, will spark another flurry of I told you so's and I know who did it and they're hiding stuff and corrupt law and whatnot. In the end, it's going to be one of those unfortunate legends of Oklahoma history, he said. Even if a future DNA test brings more clarity, ex-journalist Doug Hicks agrees some things will never be known. Early in my career, I'd always want to logic things out, Hicks said. In other words, I'd want to know why. Why did this occur? You finally came to realize you're not going to get that answer in a number of cases. There's no why. Just like the Girl Scout murders, he said. For years I asked, how could this happen? And it would be bouncing around in your mind, but you'd never come up with the answer. No one knows why those girls were killed, and never will. Because it doesn't follow the way we think. We can't think there. Rather than dwell on that part, Hicks, over the years, has thought more about the families. I was always impressed with them, he said. The parents of these children always acted with grace. They had immense grace. He added, there were times over the years I wanted to contact them, just see how they were doing. I hoped they were okay. On what was to be her last night at home, Lori Farmer had some unfinished business to attend to. Before leaving for camp, the avid reader wanted to finish her latest book, Wilson Rawls, Where the Red Fern Grows. Sherry Farmer remembers how as she packed her daughter's things, Lori walked around with the book in hand, reading the last few pages aloud to her. The story, set in northeast Oklahoma, ends sadly, of course. Billy Coleman's beloved hunting dogs, Old Dan and Little Ann, die. But it's not death without hope. The red fern that sprouts up over the dogs' graves serves not only as a memorial, but also a sign. A sign that, ultimately, life and love triumph over sorrow. As she listened to Lori read the last few pages, Sherry Farmer had no way of knowing the sorrow that, just a few hours later, was going to engulf her family. Or that, many years later, their story would have a red fern moment of its own. It came a couple of years ago, during a return visit to Camp Scott with her husband and other family members. It was a lot harder than I imagined it would be, Farmer said, of visiting the place where her daughter was killed, adding that two conflicting feelings of needing to be there and not wanting to be there were tearing her apart inside. The hardest part, she added, was standing at the spot where the bodies were found. 
putting her hand on a tree to brace herself. She was almost overwhelmed, she said, by the feelings of heaviness and darkness. But then, out of the corner of her eye, she saw something, a flash of bright color. A beautiful monarch butterfly with orange and black wings had alighted on the tree just above Farmer's resting hand. And it just stayed there, she said. Stayed for a long time. Farmer doesn't insist you assign the butterfly a meaning, but she admits several possibilities floated through her mind. Was it a sign from God? Or from Lori, maybe? And if so, what did it mean? Was her late daughter trying to tell her that she was okay? That everything was going to be all right? I thought of all of those things, Farmer said. Finally, after what seemed like minutes, the butterfly's wings stirred to life. It flitted away. For a story that began in darkness, a darkness that for three families seemed ready to extinguish all the light in the world, the butterfly, like the red fern, is a good image to close with. A sign, if you will, that the end is not really the end, that ultimately the light prevails. Farmer is convinced of that. And after everything the past 40 years have brought, the crushing sorrow and grief, the lack of answers, she can still say confidently, I wouldn't have missed being Lori's mother for anything in the world. What you just heard was the sixth of six articles written in 2017 by Tim Stanley for the Tulsa World, as read by the author. All of those can be found at TulsaWorld.com, presented with incredible new photos alongside images from the newspaper's archives. Links to those and any other relevant content can be found in the show notes. After a short pause, we're going to go to a conversation between myself and Tim that was recorded just last week. We could just, you know, I, I mean, you know, the Michelle Hoffman thing, is, that's where the story leads off. I mean, I can just kind of, you know, what, Chris, I think, you know, what we've been doing in, in the last story and as we're coming into this one, you know, story number six, which uh, obviously you know, it was going to be the last one. I, we've been kind of looking at the, uh, the toll that, you know, this event, this terrible event took on the people both directly and uh, peripherally, you know, related to it. And, you know, Michelle Hoffman and Carla Wilhite and some of the other counselors, you know, these, these guys were all, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old when this happened, they were all there, you know, at the camp. And, you know, the focus on the toll of this, and rightly so, is more often than not, it's going to be on the families. And and we've also talked about, you know, the investigators and media members. You know, Michelle told me, you know, that, you know, all those in all these years, no one has ever really asked them or come to them and asked them about this experience. And I mean, I'm sure for some of them, they would not have welcomed being asked because that's not for everybody, you know, to talk about something like this. But she said, really, uh, you know, the counselor's side was never really requested or, or uh, you know, they never really had a chance to talk about it. And what we learned from them, I think, and it, it kind of carries on this idea that we brought up previously of, you know, how nobody just walks away from something like this. It stays with you. And for many, that might be in ways that aren't obvious at first or don't manifest themselves for a long time. You know, Michelle, you know, talked about being diagnosed eventually with PTSD. 
and um, relating. Not the only one. They all had, you know, all kinds of emotional problems, depression, different things that when they sought treatment, ultimately these issues were directly related to this event. You know, it's interesting, and listeners may have picked up on this previously, maybe when we were doing the intro, but I have done a lot of interviews with World War II veterans. I mean, within the last five years for a project that we've done, I've done 130 plus interviews with World War II guys, um, done a handful of Korea and Vietnam as well. And what what I've you know seen with those interviews, many of these guys, you know, they came back from the war and they had they bury this, they just bury this trauma, and they go on with their lives. And then years later, they began to have problems you know, much later in life, a lot of these guys, you know, are diagnosed with PTSD or depression, um, other issues related directly to that, you know, that trauma, that traumatic experience all those years earlier. We have come a long way, you know, in treating that. I mean, we're able to put a name on a lot of these things and um, these mental health things and treat them. I mean, some ways we're still just scratching the surface, but we're, we're doing a lot better with that. But Michelle and the counselors, I mean, they, this was a very similar thing. And it's, you know, PTSD is something we associate with, with war veterans, but it definitely is not just exclusive to them. I think it's interesting that Michelle talks about, you know, in addition to therapy, I think probably one of the most healing things for them was when they all uh, reconnected and, and they got together and eventually made a trip back to the camp you know, had not been in 30, 35 years. It was then, especially in their reconnecting and being able to talk to each other about these things that they really couldn't talk to other people about. If you weren't there, you don't get it, you know, because I found that same thing to be true with veterans, you know, because many of them will eventually find healing later in life through veterans groups and by connecting with guys with shared experiences that they can talk to. And I think that was very much the case and has continued to be the case for these, for these counselors. You know, I'm so glad that we got to be able to bring them into the story. And it was through Michelle, once we connected with her, you know, she was in touch with Carla and that it worked out that we could talk to Carla. Just being able to bring their perspective in, because that's something really that had never been explored. And just to kind of better appreciate how this thing affected everybody and continues to 40 plus years later continues to people still heal in their own ways and just figure out how do I live, you know, having been through this and how do I deal with this? That's why we kind of, I wanted to kind of start with them in, in the story and just kind of bring their voices to bear a little more. You start with uh, Michelle Hoffman, talking about going back to the the actual site and you know talking about uh feeling like she's back home did you go as well to the to the site at some point we did make a trip you know it took some doing to get in there i think as i've mentioned before that property and it's you know a couple hundred acres i mean it's a large property it's uh you know it is privately owned now you know the girl scouts eventually sold it. It was never used, you know, for camp again after that night. Um, they eventually sold it. But it's now, uh, you know, it's now privately owned. And the part where the actual camp facilities were is, you know, part of a hunting lease. 
but we did, uh, we were eventually able to work it out to get in there. And I, you know, I felt like we absolutely had to make that happen. I mean, I think a sense of setting is really uh, important to telling this story. I think that people have an idea in their minds of what a camp looks like. And I'm sure there are parallels to Camp Scott, but being able to bring that aspect to life in the story, particularly in the first story, but, um, you know, I thought that was important. And and how can we do that if if we don't see it? Remember, it was just a, it was a really, it was a hot day. And um, I think conditions probably were a lot like what they would have been because they they were there. You know, the camp session was in June. And I think we were there. I think it was not long before the series came out. It's probably in in early May uh, when we were there. So really hot. The place, it's very much been repossessed, so to speak, by the uh, the wilderness. I mean, when you're not, you know, when a place is not being kept up, (laughs) Um, and that is some some wild terrain in that area. I mean, it uh, you can still find um, the tent sites, you know, where the the, uh, the girls stayed. Those are all gone. But there is uh, the main facility is still there. Some of the structures were made from brick or stone, and those are still there. They're they're obviously in very much in disrepair after all these years. But you know, after after knowing hearing this story and becoming so familiar with it, it was really a, a, an interesting experience to be able to see the place. And the guy who was taking us in was able to uh, help us kind of pinpoint the place where the bodies would have been found uh, the morning after. So we were, were able to kind of stand there and, you know, it's just, uh, you know, I don't want to say eerie because I was with four or five people with us, one of one of our photographers, uh, Jesse Wardarski, and it was the middle of the day. I can imagine that if I was there at night, that would, <laughs> yeah, that would uh, that would be a very just to me kind of a creepy place to be. At that point, you had spent so much time working on this story and interacting with everyone and knowing so many of the the minute details of the crime itself that. It, once somebody points out a patch of land that otherwise might have meant nothing to you until you realize what it is, yeah, then it takes on all, all of the meaning and all of the the emotional resonance that you've got built up behind it. Definitely, I'm sure it would have been a different experience if if I went to the camp first or early on in the research process. It was really one of the last things we were able to do. And I, and I think that probably that worked out better that way. I, it's even hard to put words to it, but to visit a site where, you know, those kind of things have happened that has such a troubling history. Yeah, it definitely, it, it made a mark on me. The images that stand out to me most are just how much, you know, it has really been consumed by by the wilderness. You know, there's enough left at the camp to to know that there was a camp there at some time, but to get a real idea of how it was laid out and other things like that, it's it's really kind of impossible, you know, at this point, because um, it's very much, uh, yeah, just been kind of reclaimed uh, by the, uh, the forests and the woods. It was something we wanted to do, and I'm glad that we got to do that.
were there any other counselors that you talked to or was it just Michelle Hoffman and uh, Carla, Wil- Carla Wilhite? Yeah, just those two. We reached out to a couple of the others and um, I can't remember exactly. I don't know if I got turned down or if they just didn't follow up with me, which is, you know, that's perfectly okay. You know, not everybody wants to talk about this, especially with a reporter. Totally get that because, I mean, you're making your story public and uh, you know, maybe that's you're not there yet. Maybe that's not something you want to do. But no, it was just those two. But I thought, you know, Michelle in particular was able to kind of be a voice for all of them, especially since, you know, she was the one who kind of uh, spearheaded them all getting together and had kind of been the, the main driver in what I guess you could call a reunion of them uh, coming back and going back to the camp um, and just being able to talk about what, you know, what that was like for them as a group to be there together after all those years. You know, it's interesting. They, you mentioned this, but, you know, and Michelle's memories and those of the campers, I mean, this was a place they loved. I mean, they came there every year. Some of the best memories of their childhoods and adolescence uh, were from this camp and their experiences with it. And and they had all of that just end. Then to have this horrible, you know, tragedy associated with it, you can imagine how emotional that must have been for them to go back after all those years and to do that together at this place that once meant so much to you, but which you lost. And, you know, we also, we talked about in this story how the farmer family, Bo and Sherry, they, they have been back to the camp and they've, I think they've been there a couple of times and that's part of their, their healing journey. I think, you know, for them, their associations with that place were completely different than, you know, Michelle and the counselors. They, cause the farmers didn't have any prior associations with it. And so all that camp was for them was the place where their daughter was murdered So, you know, going back for them was not, you know, a happy experience or a chance to relive old memories. It was just, you know, crossing a bridge, so to speak. It's something that I think they felt they needed to do. But, you know, it's different for everybody because I don't think I don't think Betty Milner has ever been back. Um, As far as for the Gousses, I don't know. But, um, you know, the farmers did do that twice, I believe. Yeah. going, Going back. I mean, who? Different for the different people in this, but for all for you know the farmers and you know the counselors, they all for whatever reason felt there was something that they they needed to do. You mentioned the the Milners, who there, there's a new character who was introduced in in this article, Dean Majors. Yes, related to the Milners. Yeah, Dean Majors. He was a pivotal figure uh, for us, even though he. I think he appears only in this story. You know, he's been involved in his own way in the story for a number of years. And Dean has developed a relationship with both, you know, the Farmer family and the Milners. The role he kind of plays in this story, I mean, he's almost emerged as kind of this figure of reconciliation. Because he here he is, um, a Locust Grove native you know, who has had a long interest in the case. And in being from Locust Grove and having been alive at the time, I think he was very young. I mean, it's personal to him. But he didn't stop there. I mean, he took that interest in the story a step further and reached out and, and began a relationship with the families of the girls. It's almost in a sense like he's kind of taken it upon himself, you know, to represent the community to them and kind of begin a healing process there. 
I know that, you know, the farmers and the milliners both feel a real bond to Dean and are glad for his efforts um, and really appreciate them because I think they, they kind of changed their minds about Locust Grove, you know, whatever Locust Grove might have represented them to them at one time. And I mean, you got to think about this, you know, it's, it's where their daughters were murdered and it's where there was, you know, a lot of sympathy for the main suspect. You know, they had some pretty negative associations with, with Locust Grove. And I would say that, you know, thanks to Dean and his efforts, you know, their view is at least, you know, much more nuanced now. And I, I was able to see and hear firsthand, you know, what a difference, you know, it's made Dean's gestures have to them and his reaching out and, and there being a relationship there. And I do think that they have experienced some healing because of him. I really love that, the fact that, you know, the idea that here he is, a hometown boy from Locust Grove who, you know, really wanted to do this and kind of build a bridge there and just show them. Because I think they've, they've uh, both the families have made trips to Locust Grove with him, which, you know, at one time going back there or going to Locust Grove will probably have been an unthinkable thing for the farmers and owners. But, you know, he's helped make that happen and it's helped with their healing. He's such an interesting character in for this story, but for where the story ended up going, as far as the farmers and the milliners, he was about their daughter's age, roughly, right? I and mean, he he was like six or seven in like when it happened. Yeah, I think he grew up, yeah, right down the the road during the camp. We're, we're talking about. I mean, Logos Grove is not a big town, and the camp is a couple of miles south of it. Yeah, you've got people that live all over that that area. But yeah, it was definitely, I mean, he knew the camp and uh, his memories. Yeah. He would have been very young, but I mean, he had some, some memories of it. Yeah. He's take. I mean, I don't know of anyone else who's, and you know, that would be awkward. I mean, how do you reach out to somebody like that and say, Hey, you know, I'm from this town, you know, where this happened. And I know your experience with the townsfolk here has been negative, but I just, I just want to reach out and let you know that, I care about you and I care about um, getting answers. I mean, that's essentially what he's done. Yeah. It's one thing to do that and then to end up becoming this part of their lives uh, and becoming not just someone who is trying to reconcile them with Locust Grove in and of itself, which might have been, you know, purely his entire original intention, but then to become part of their, I mean, I don't know if part of their family would be too, too much of a stretch to say. I don't know that it would be. I think, yeah, I mean, I think they, they may think of him as family and that's taken, that's not something that happened overnight, but I think, you know, they, they've been friends now, you know, for a number of years. I can't remember when he first reached out, but it's probably been 15 or 20 years at least. So there's been time there for relationships to develop. And uh, again, yes, I mean, they've gone back with him. He's taken them there. I think they've attended uh, football games with him there. So, yeah, just uh, kind of an unusual situation, but it sounds like it's been very rewarding for, for all parties. And somebody else in this in this uh, this article who was about the same age as Dean Majors when the murders originally happened in 77 is Susan Kelly. Yes. Who went on to, she has kind of played a 
different role, but she started the the website campscottmurders.com, which is still up. And I mean, it looks like it's a pretty in- interesting resource for people who want to access court transcripts and other content that I, I would assume that she got through, you know, freedom of information or something along those lines. And she's made public through that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't know if you, uh, is there any, what was it that, that, that put her down, down the path of being so interested and involved with, with the, the case? She's not from there, but she is, I think, Salome Springs, Arkansas, which that's not that's not that far. I mean, it's, it's right across the line, but she was from the same general region. I think it was, uh, I think more than anything, it was probably that, you know, she was about the same age when this happened, and she was a Girl Scout. I think her mother was a troop leader, if I recall. Very distinct memories of even being seven years old at the time, very distinct memories of when this happened and how it affected people, how it affected, uh, you know, people within her Girl Scout community there uh, in Arkansas. And she said, I think, you know, she feels personal about the mission, but I think that's where I think it's, it's rooted in the fact that could have been her, you know, from her perspective. She was seven years old. She was in the Girl Scouts. Could have happened to her. It could have happened to one of her friends. She didn't know, you know, these girls. They weren't from, they weren't in the same group. They weren't in the same community. But you still feel a connection, you know, because they're Girl Scouts. And, and you are a Girl Scout. And you spend a lot of your weekends doing Girl Scout things. You know, it was just personal for her in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, she's she was seven, I believe. I think Dean Majors, you know, probably would have been around that same age. So, you know, here you have two people who, um, Dean being from Locust Grove, of course, uh, Susan not from too far away, um, who are now, you know, 45 years removed, you know, they're, they're in middle age, they've lived with this story, you know. And obviously for Dean, it's it's about his hometown and that's a little different, but... I mean, you have two people who are still very much invested in this story, you know, kind of committed in their own way to, uh, you know, seeing some answers come out of this. And yeah, Susan has done, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, with the transcripts and all that, and I, you know, she's done a lot of work and there's, I mean, she's got a book out too, which you can get through her website which just is kind of a, a chronicle, a blow-by-blow blow, blow blow chronicle, I think, of, of the crimes. Yeah, it's just interesting uh, how this, this this story for the people that um, have allowed it to has kind of consumed them and, and continue to be part of their lives. And I feel very much the same way. And, you know, I didn't come to the story until, you know, four years ago. But uh, it, is a, uh, it is a consuming thing. Yeah, it definitely makes me wonder about I mean, when you have, you know, Dean Majors and Susan Kelly being the two most, you know, prominent figures, at least that, you know, this story touched on, uh, who, you know, they're two people who were clearly very deeply affected by this in in different ways and um, you know, felt touched by it uh, and wanted to to play a role and I just 
you know, it just has me wondering about, are there any other ways that this has affected the, the community or, I mean, is there like when you were, you know, starting to, I mean, I guess, did you like cold call anybody or, you know, just kind of get. When I look back at the old articles, yeah, there was a lot of the, so, I mean, what we used to call the man in the street kind of, cause we'd send people, uh, you know, to Locust Grove or, you know, just to get random opinions. I was really systematic, you know, in my preparing for this and, and singling out, you know, the interviews I wanted to go after um, and that I thought, you know, were important. Not that there might not have been a place for that. It just didn't, it just didn't really work out. I think it would be interesting, particularly maybe go back to the high school there or anyone who would have, you know, known Gene Hart um, during that time of his life. We'd be fortunate probably in finding, you know, anybody who'd want to talk about it, you know, because it still can, can be a prickly thing from what I hear. But it's one of those things where it, you're already at a certain length. And um, <laughs> I've got people telling me you need to rein this in <laughs> so that we can keep it so that we don't have to start cutting. And um, but, yeah, there are there are definitely in retrospect, there are maybe some things that I would. And there and there were other interviews that just didn't work out. And then other interviews, you know, people that had already passed away that were key figures um, that, you know, ideally, you know, had we had the opportunity, um, would have been good to interview, but I mean, that's something you deal with when you're 40 years removed. I mean, from an event, some people are going to be dead. I mean, it's just, you know, the reality. And it's also, I mean, with this specific event, it sprawls because there's no, there's no closure to it. There's no real end note. There's no, um, you know, real button at the end of it other than Hart's passing but if anything that just opens up that many more avenues of discussion yeah but I totally get you having had to <laughs> rein it in and especially with the I mean the six articles is you're not generous uh but with the you know the state of it was yeah and give and given the state of you know <laughs> where the industry's gone just in the last since the the series came out yeah a lot of credit to you know my bosses who saw the potential for this and then you know worked to make sure that we had the room because this wasn't just you know these stories didn't just drop online you know where you have unlimited space i mean they were these were featured in our print section you know a couple of stories are you know pretty long and um but we were able to get them all in and, and along with photos so were we to do this now i could see this you know them telling me okay three or four stories and that's that's just the realities of uh you know where we're at everybody is so strapped for for resources exactly it's not so much you know the ability or even you know the column inches or whatever it's it's the everyone's doing so many things and there's only i mean like like you were saying you can't chase down every single lead on this because you gotta you gotta file yeah they're not letting me write a book you know which 
You know, I did honestly felt after this that I this I had written probably at least the moral equivalent of a book. But even then, and I look back at it and I still see, well, you know, I should have um, included this or I should have um, followed this lead or I mean, even, you know, then I there are just so many other things that could have been done. But um, I still am I'm very pleased with it. And when you said you said the word generous and I absolutely think that's the right word from my perspective and toward because, yeah, I this project could have easily gotten uh, whittled down, you know, in, in the process. And, but, um, you know, my, uh, my bosses believed in it and they believed in the people that were me and the other people, you know, helping make it happen. So, you know, we got the space, you know, we wanted, so yeah, generous, uh, yeah, to a fault. Just, I'm, I'm very happy with all of that. There's some interesting images, you know, throughout, the the story one of the things that jumped out was from the the fifth article i mean that you open with the the african violet and just so many na- nature elements uh for this and in this article the the real prominent one that lingers for me was the the talk of the red fern and how that yeah the novel where the red fern grows were you familiar with that by the way i think i read it at some point when I would have been around their age. I was familiar with the basics of where the red fern grows. If I recall rightly, I wasn't that I read it. I think a teacher read it to the class when I was in second or third grade, but I remember certain details of it vividly because it is a very, it's an emotional story and uh, with a very sad ending, but an ending that is not just sad. There is an element of hope. The book is also an example for me of how, you know, and we're talking about how this series came together. Research and storytelling project like this, the process is, you know, far from linear because you collecting information and and as you do that, you try to be orderly and systematic, but there's also an organicness to it, if that's the right word. And and what I mean is there are details that just emerge unexpectedly as you're doing the work when you're not even looking for them. And specifically, this book, Where the Red Fern Grows, was a very late detail in the process. And how it came into the story was, you know, we did a a wrap-up interview. In fact, I think it was the last in-person interview we did for the series, and it was with Bo and Sherry Farmer um, at their home in Tulsa. I'd interviewed Sherry before, but this was a sit down with both of them at their home uh, to get video as well. And but we'd done the interview uh, and then I think we'd wrapped and and they took us, uh, they showed us around the house. And and one of the things they showed us, um, they they have a little room there that is kind of just uh, a room that they keep in honor of of their daughter, Lori. And I remember specifically Sherry telling me (laughs) in her inimitable way, she said, don't think we're weirdos or anything. I mean, this is not a shrine to Lori. And and you know what? It, it wasn't. And I didn't think of it that way. I mean, it's just a room where they've got some of her things. You know, there's a painting on the wall in there of her that, that a local artist, I think, had given them basically as a gift. But uh, no, it's just uh, it's it's just a way of showing that Lori is still very much, you know, a part of their family, even though she may not be there present physically. 
But as I was in the room and looking around at some of the items, uh, there were some books and I noticed one of them, they're paperbacks. And uh, one of them was Where the Red Fern Grows. I was, you know, familiar with that. And I just picked it up and started kind of thumbing through it. And I noticed uh, just on the inside front cover, there was a name written there, Lori Farmer, and written in what was a child's handwriting. So clearly uh, Lori had written her name in it. And I remember Sherry saying to me, she said, oh, yeah, you know, Lori was reading that book, you know, the night before she left for camp. And um, I said, oh, really? And uh, so that was it was compelling to me to be holding the book that, you know, obviously meant a lot to Lori and was, you know, some of her last thoughts, you know, at home uh, before she left would have been of this book, which made it all the more poignant to see it. And Sherry said, you know, she was, uh, yeah, she was kind of uh, wanting to finish it before she left. And as Sherry was packing her clothes or helping her pack that evening, Lori was reading, I think, passages from the book out loud to her. And so, you know, I thought all that was interesting and kind of cool. But at the time, I just kind of filed it away in my mind. And then you know, I think it was later that evening uh, after that interview, you know, it just kind of hit me as I was thinking about that book. Because Sherry had told me previously, back when I first sat down with her, she had mentioned this incident, this butterfly, uh, when she went back to the camp and she saw this butterfly at a very, what she believed was opportune moment. And that it, how it had suggested to her, I think, that, you know, that was either God's way or Lori's way, you know, of assuring her that that she was fine. And that uh, but it was a meaningful interaction that Sherry had with this butterfly. And I, I remember thinking, well, that's a beautiful thought. And I'm definitely going to include that. But it, it just occurred to me as I was thinking about the book that there is a striking parallel, in my opinion, with how that book ends and this butterfly and the book ending with this image of the red fern growing up over the graves of, of the two dogs that the book is about, which I know that's a spoiler. Yes, the dogs die at the end. Sorry. Um, and the red fern. I think most, most people who are familiar with the book probably know that. But, you know, this parallel jumped out at me. And I remember thinking, you know what, I've got to work this in. Well, at this point, I'd already written most of that last story story number six. And I think I ended up going in and probably rewriting the last third of it. To me, it was a late, again, a late detail in the process, this book, but I think it was very critical to developing, you know, one of the themes, and that's the theme of hope, you know, of hope in the context of, you know, how oftentimes in this life, you know, we are dealt events that bring pain and suffering and sorrow, but, you know, even in the middle of all that, you know, there's always hope and that none of those things, you know, have to have the final word. So between the butterfly and Sherry's visit to the camp and then, you know, the red fern in the story, you know, it's like the message and it could be God or the universe or, or whatever your belief happens to be about ultimate reality. It's like it, it's saying something to us, right? You know, take heart. Um, this is not the end. And, um, you know, I think that's a beautiful and comforting thought. And it just, I was already using that theme and I was already going to bring the butterfly into the story, but having, being able to tie the red fern in with it, I think made it that much stronger. It's interesting how 
in the writing process and anybody who's done this kind of writing and, and you know lengthy projects once it's in the hands of the reader or in this case the ear of the listener and once your story is with them the recipient it's to them everything looks perfectly planned out <laughs> but i can tell you uh you know as a writer and it, it's never that way and some of the best things can come when you aren't looking for them I mean, you just have to be open to them. And, and over the process of this series, there were some nice surprises. And that was one of them for me is, you know, the parallels with that book, which, you know, as we mentioned, is actually set in northeastern Oklahoma. So there, it's the book has a local tie. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, the butterfly and the red fern are two images that have stayed with me. And... Um, they're images that I think, because what is, you know, thinking back, what is the first word in this entire series? The first story starts out with a one word sentence. What is that? It's darkness. And, you know, we go on to put that image very early on in the reader's minds, the listener's minds. And, you know, using this um, Michelle Hoffman, I think, memories of this the deep, dark woods at night and how you've never seen real darkness unless you've been in that that you know that dark impenetrable night in the woods so we we start with that image and then working from that we go through a lot of darkness in this series and um you know a lot of evil a lot of just bad things and uh, a lot of pain for a lot of people but you know by the time we get to the end you know we're able to offer we're able to bring in this image, you know, that is kind of counter to the darkness, I think, and, and shows that even in darkness, you know, there is light and that maybe ultimately the light prevails. I mean, we can all hope that. And I believe that. And I hope, you know, readers, listeners, you know, but if they've been with us this far and I hope they all have and, you know, they hear the series through to the end, I hope that's what they're left with, you know, that darkness does happen. I mean, Life can be very dark at times, but there is hope and there is light. And I think these families and the other people who live through this, I think that that's my big takeaway is that however dark it gets, you don't have to be defeated by that. And ultimately, it doesn't have to define you. That's a comforting uh, message that I think I, I take from the examples of the families. I went into this not knowing, obviously, how it was going to end, but the fact that all of the the families ended up persevering through this in ways that ended up benefiting the community or you know providing support for others and the story you know definitely focuses so much on the the positive effects that managed to come from this horrific experience for for a town for for a state for for these families for friends so that's the end of chapter six. Yep. And we'll do, I think, one more uh, just to kind of yep. tie up any any loose ends, get some, and anything that, that we didn't touch on uh, that, that you came across that, you know, might be worthwhile. I'll probably see if I can't, you know, see if there's any any questions that listeners have that that we can pass on and. And, and talk about so we'll have sure. one last little capstone 
Well, thank you for tuning in to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. There is a lot more where that came from just over the horizon, so make sure that you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. As I said earlier, there are a ton of incredible resources you can explore on the Tulsa World website, which I'll have links to in the show notes. And again, the final wrap-up episode will be airing next week, so send any questions that you have to clay at madison.com. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Chris Lay, with tremendous thanks to Tim Stanley and the rest of the team at Tulsa World for the work they put in reporting this series back in 2017. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay.